We've been in a series called Soul Care. And the launching verse, the key verse that uh, sort of, as I was reading it and thinking about it, this is the verse, 3 John 1, 2, that just caused me to think about the reality of the day that we live in and the hurt that people carry in their lives. It's 3 John 1, 2. It says, Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you even as your soul is getting along well. And, and a lot of times there's just a verse here or there that as I'm spending time reading God's word that just causes me to think. It causes me to ask God some questions. And this is one of them. He says, even as your soul is getting along well. I began to think, really? You know, okay, so John is writing to this, God, this person and this person was supposed to pass the letter on. But he was saying, I think his name was Gaius. And he was saying, Gaius, your soul, I hope everything's going good. You're healthy, you're happy, things are good in your life, just like your soul is getting along well. And I began to think about this. I began to think, you know, the reality is not a lot of people, not everyone's soul is getting along well. Not everyone is prospering in that area. Not everyone's doing great in that area. And we began to talk about this two, three weeks ago now. And we began to say, you know what? It's okay to not be okay because God is doing something. God is at work. It's, it's okay to not have to pretend that everything is good, right? Because God is working. We want God to work. And I think sometimes pretending is masking, posing, is, is, trying, is, is showing people that things are good when it's not good. And that's not to say that we, we need to air our dirty laundry to everyone. But the reality is, there is no condemnation if you're struggling at this moment in time. You know? You're here at church. That's a huge step, right? You're, you're pressing into God. That's huge. I commend you. Keep going after the things that God has for you. And, and this is sort of the premise or the underlying goal of this series called Soul Care. Is we want to help people in their soul to be doing well. You know? And so we've talked about depression, anxiety. We looked at this guy named Elijah and looked at the challenges that he faced and some of the reasons why he found himself in the place that he did. And today I want to talk to you about this concept called identity. And I've titled my message, you ever see that commercial, Life Lock? I've titled my message, Life Lock, Protecting Your Identity. Protecting Your Identity. Because the reality is there are times that uh, we, we don't realize who we really are. And when we don't realize who we really are and who God has made us to be, we are vulnerable to give in to the ways of culture and the thought life that people portray on us and the things perhaps they, they said about us and, and instead of realizing who God has made us to be. And so we're seeking to raise up a group of people, an army of people that would say, no, I know who I am, right? I know who God has called me to be. And being strong, be able to stand in the faith, even in the midst of opposition's challenges and struggles in life. And so um, I want to continue the series by first starting off with a story that I heard. And I know I've shared this story before, but perhaps you weren't here when I shared it. They called her the witch of Wall Street. She was the most, she was the richest woman in America in the early 1900s. Very, very rich woman. 
but she was also labeled America's greatest miser. Her name was Hetty Green. And she had uh, inherited about $6 million in the 1800s, and she began to invest it, and she was a financer, and she invested in bonds and real estate. But she didn't live, if you were to look at her life, she did not live in any way close to the woman uh, that represented and had a lot of money. She lived like a miser. She ate cold oatmeal because she was too cheap to use the gas to heat the oatmeal. She, her son, her son lost his leg because she took too long in trying to find a free clinic. She would not take him to the doctor and pay a bill to the doctor. I mean, this woman was a miser. She would not spend money. She, she dressed in black. In, she was always dressed in black in sort of like a mourning-type mode. Um, and and she was, she's a very interesting person. But she, when she died, she had $100 million of liquid assets plus property and bonds and things like that that, um, inc- that uh, added to her, her value. And they estimate now that she died with $2.5 billion in modern-day money. She died with that much money to her account or in her account. She was wealthy, yet she chose to live as a pauper. Wealthy, wealthy woman. And she believed that she couldn't, she just couldn't spend the money. She had to hoard it, she had to hide it, she had to invest it, but she couldn't use it to be a blessing to those around her or even to her family. And so there's some lie in there that she fell prey to. And I've got a statement I want you to just hear. It says, a lie believed as truth will affect you even as if it were true. A lie believed as truth will affect you even as if it were true. And I want to say, now, about our souls, we are in a spiritual battle. And and there's an enemy out there, his name is Satan, and and his goal is to get you to believe lies. He'll get you to believe lies so that you believe them as if they are true. He'll get you to think differently than what God wants you to think, differently about yourself, about other people, so that that becomes your reality. And so this, this battle, this, this war, is really about our thoughts and what we do with our thoughts. It's a battle, like jo- Joyce Meyer says, it's a battlefield of the mind. And I will tell you, when we talk about soul, soul is comprised of three things. Your mind, your will, and your emotions. And they all go hand in hand. So John writes... I pray that, hey, Gaius, I pray that your soul is getting along well. I want to see you prosper. I want to see you be, I want to see you doing good in your mind, will, and emotions. Now, how many believe that it's God's will? This is in God's word, right? How many believe that it's God's will that your soul would be doing well? Do you believe that God really wants that for you? You believe that it's God's desire that your soul is doing well, that in your mind, your, your thoughts, your, your beliefs, how you, how you operate with and deal with the things that run through your mind every day. 
that it's, that it's well, that it's healthy, that, that your will and your purposes and the plans that you have and the desires that you go after are, are doing well. And your emotions, mind, will, and emotions are doing well. Do you really believe that God cares about that stuff? Do you believe that he wants you to be doing well? I, I believe that too. I really do. I believe that his desire is uh, that we are doing well. And, and so when we're on the topic of identity, the number one way that the enemy gets you to lose your identity is he gets you to believe a lie or a series of lies. Many times it starts off as the subtle thing, but there's a lie that's built upon that lie that you've already believed. Or the, there's a lie that is built upon the lie that you heard that you maybe didn't necessarily believe. But then you keep hearing these lies or seeing or experiencing things that are untruth to convince you of the core lie. This is, this is how the enemy works. He's very subtle, very sneaky, very deceptive. The Bible calls him a deceiver. And so how do we believe a lie? And, and there's, I'm going to answer that question as far as, uh, as it relates to how I see it. First of all, lies come our way through the opinions of others. It could have started when you were a little kid. You're, you're no good. You'll never amount to nothing. Boy, I wish you were like your bigger brother or bigger sister. And we start to hear these things. You're not smart. You know, use your, use your brain. And we start to hear and receive these critical things that begin to seep into our mind. Eventually, especially if we hear them enough, we have a tendency. And kids especially, they, they believe, they tend to believe people who are in authority in their lives. Right? Receive those statements as truth. They receive those statements as truth. And so we, we hear these things from parents, peers, teachers... Co-workers, people in our lives, people around us, fellow students, they begin to speak and reinforce the things that, uh, in our mind that may not necessarily be true. And we believe them. We, we believe them. And so this translates into things like this. We start, after we believe them, we start saying them to ourselves. I am worthless. No one loves me. I, I can't. I just can't. And, and we start to verbalize in some way, shape, or form what was originally a lie. We speak it out. We believe it. And we begin to verbalize it. So the opinions of others that are spoken to us or implied to us, that sometimes we get something that's not even spoken, right? We could, we could pick it up by, by, uh, you know, by, by people's impressions. People, the way people look at us, the nonverbals, all these things. We, we pick these things up. Um, another way that we start to believe the lie is through the hurt that we've experienced in our lives. There are times that we are, we are victims. There's times that we, we've, we've experienced things. And in there is now created a wound in somebody. And we start to live out of that wound. We start to live out of that wound and out of that wound, a lie is formed. You deserve this. It's your fault, right? The, these lies start to, um, 
start to manifest themselves in, uh, you know, through or, or come through either abuse or rejection um, or maybe they come out of us through anger, bitterness. We feel guilty. We feel dirty. And I, I don't want to minimize this moment. The reality is there's many people hurting and you're living out of a wound from many, many, many years ago. And it's impacted how you're living today. It's impacted how you look at people, treat people. Maybe it's certain categories of people. But a wound from years ago has yet to be healed. I want to tell you something. We can help you. One of the biggest struggles is people realizing that there's something still hurting deep inside of them. And then taking the steps or the action to say, I've got, I know God doesn't want this there. I know God's made a way for me to be whole and healed. And taking the steps necessary to, to move out of that. Um, there's this quote, this guy named Blaise Pascal. I want to get into the whole concept of identity here. This guy named Blaise Pascal said this. Not only do we know God through Jesus Christ, but we only know ourselves through Jesus Christ. Listen to me. You can know yourself. You can know what's going on inside of you. You can discover the, the wounds and the things that are not right through Jesus Christ. So I want to talk to you today about the cross. Because to me, there are four very clear things that are, I mean, shouted 2,000 years ago and continue to be echoed throughout all eternity that is directed, that, are, that is communicated through the action of Jesus Christ going to the cross. I'm not, I'm not talking about the quotes from the cross. I'm saying the fact that he went to the cross says something very loudly to us. It's shouting to us some very clear things that we need to know. And I'm convinced that these four things are the source of identity problems in the church of Jesus Christ. And he solved them 2,000 years ago. To me, the, one of the biggest, probably the number one issue in the church is the issue of identity. And what I mean when I say that is this. People don't really understand what God has truly done for them. People don't truly understand how amazing of a gift of salvation Christ has made possible for us. And people don't understand how amazing this love that God has extended to us is. It's healing. It's powerful. It's transformational. It changes us forever when we truly choose to walk in it. Amen? Now keep in mind the enemy... Is, is doing his work to try and prevent you from walking in the truth and the reality of what God has done for us. So he, he works to convince you otherwise, but God shouts from the cross, you need to know what I've done for you. So I want to share very, very quickly four points, four thoughts related to what God has done because the cross does reveal identity, our identity. The first one is this, you are loved. I want you to know that today. You are loved. When people struggle, one of the greatest struggles is, like Elijah, he's like, I'm all alone. There's no one. I don't have anyone around. The cross shouts, you are loved. In fact, you are loved extravagantly. 
I want you to just make a, I want you to just declare that. I am loved. Let's do this. One, two, three. I am loved. That's what the cross says to you. Let's do it again. I am loved. We need to know that. We need to know that we are loved. Jesus going to the cross declares that we are loved. Now, in, in our culture, in our day, even in our parenting sometimes, one of the things that we do is we withhold love when someone's not performing. Did you ever experience that? I'm not pleased with you. And so it seems what's conveyed, what's communicated, whether it be just by, uh, you know, it doesn't even have to be through words, is you're not going to get my love until you do what I want you to do. And what that does is it breeds shame, guilt, and condemnation. And we look at our Father through that lens sometimes, and it's easy to find guilt and shame in an, as a result of our lifestyles, and we say, well, God's got to be holding love for me. We think, God's got to be holding love for me because I'm not doing the right thing, or I'm not perfect, or I failed again, or I let him down. And I want you to know something powerfully, powerful. And we're going to look at Jeremiah 31, verse 3. But love is not a reward for performance. It's not a reward, not God's kind of love. God's kind of love is not a reward for performance. It is a gift. Jeremiah 31, 3 says this. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I've drawn you with un." failing kindness. His love is a different kind of love. It's unconditional. It's not the kind of love that says, I will love you if. It's the kind of love that says, I love you. But God, I I mean, I've been so, I've done so many stupid things. I've made so many mistakes. How could you? He says, I love you. You don't have to do anything to qualify for his amazing love. His love is unconditional. His love doesn't come with, if you perform and say and do the right things, then I'll love you. His love is amazing. And so in our minds, when we feel like we've got to earn his love, we think God's going to love me more because I go to church or because I'm a good person or because I said the right things or I stopped and helped that person. Listen to me. God can't love you any more today than he already does. It's impossible. He he can't love you any more than he already does. God's love is present. You are loved. I want you to know that. And when you begin to get those feelings that come back, and oh, they will, then no one loves you. They put up with you. You start to think those old thoughts. You need to remind yourself, I am loved. I'm loved. And the cross is the focal point of God's love. In 1 John 4.10, it says this. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He initiated this whole thing. He was the starting point. It was his idea. 
He didn't, you know, he, he, didn't, he didn't say, well, I'll just, I'll, I'll wait for them to do the right things. And, you know, as their, as their good deeds get to this certain point, once they cross that threshold, then I'll give them love. No, it was in the midst of our mess. It was in the midst of our ugliness and our dirt and our shame and our desperation to say, I can't save me, that Jesus came. You are loved. That's powerful. Second one is this. You are forgiven. The cross shouts, you are forgiven. That means that you're not carrying guilt. You don't need to carry guilt or shame or condemnation. Like the song we sang, it's so powerful that we could be free. We could be free before God. You are completely forgiven. I want you to say that. I am completely forgiven. I'm completely forgiven. This is so powerful. We can stand before God just like Jesus did. We could come before God just like Jesus did because we are completely forgiven. We're completely forgiven. It's powerful. Jesus stretched out his hands before he breathed his last and he said, Father, forgive him. Father, forgive them. And this is all a result of God's goodness, his kindness, his love, his mercy. He knew that he had to take action. When it was left in mankind's hands, we messed it up. But he initiated, and I want to share a verse with you. He initiated this whole, this whole thing. Um, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says this, that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. He made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin. Jesus was sinless to be sin for us. In essence, he took our sin. He took all the sins of mankind, past, present, present, and future. Jesus took on sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You're the righteousness of God. That's what this verse tells me. You doubt that maybe, maybe Corinthians isn't good enough. Let's look at Romans real quick. Romans 3.22, look at this. It says, this righteousness, you're the righteousness of God. That's what Paul writes in Corinthians. He says to the Romans, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. If you believe, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if if you're what we call a believer because you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God the Son came to earth, and took on flesh, human flesh, and he lived this perfect life, and then went to the cross and took on all our sins and died, taking our sins away, making a way for us to be forgiven, and three days later rose from the grave so that he's alive, he's a living God. We can die to our sin and live to God because Christ is alive. Amen? So... The Bible tells us this righteousness is given through faith in Christ to all who believe. This is powerful. Righteousness, right standing before God. He's given us the privilege. We haven't earned it. We can't earn it. We only receive and believe. We believe what he said and we receive what he offers us. That's a great exchange. It's a great... It's a great trade. I mean, we win. Have you ever been in a deal where you, like, 
You took them, man, you know. A piece of property is worth five times what you paid for it. A car worth multiple time, multiplied times what you paid for it. I mean, this can't even be counted. It's such a great exchange for us. We trade our sin for his righteousness. I mean, before God, we have this right standing. It's powerful and it's amazing. It's amazing. Now, let me tell you something. The enemy works overtime to dig up things from the past. When he does it, I, wait a second, I'm forgiven. I am forgiven. When God looks at me, he sees me in light of his son's accomplishment, Jesus Christ. I'm forgiven. I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. I don't care what you, I don't care. I mean, I, I, I can't go back in the past and change that, right? I can't change what happened yesterday. I don't want to live that way anymore, but I can't change what my past is like. And so how long do we have to live how long do we have to live um, through the lens of what we've done in the past? Today's a new day. You stand before God clean. You're forgiven. There's hope. Now, let me, let me tell you something also. People may not necessarily see you different, but your Father in heaven does. So do we, do we live our lives based upon how people see us or upon how our Father does? That's the choice we have to make. And that's really identity right there. Are we living for people or are we living for God? That is, that's sort of like the, the whole basis of identity. God's saying you're this and people and our feelings and our past and our experiences are saying we're this. And I'm trying to help you understand that if you want your soul well, You've got, to, you've got to believe what God says about you. Your soul will be well when you start to live based upon how God sees you. When, when we live for an audience of one, the Father, you know, other people, they're going to have their opinions. They're going to try and drum up the stuff that we said and did. And it's good to get forgiveness when it's appropriate, you know, and apologize and do the right thing. But the reality is I can't change yesterday. So I'm not going to let that be a ball and chain on my life for tomorrow. We've got to to move ahead. And so I am who I am. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I am completely forgiven. This is so important. And so when I understand that, I understand my true identity. So I am loved. I'm forgiven. Here's the third one. Or you are loved, you are forgiven. You are valuable. I can't tell you how many times I hear people tell me, I'm worthless. I don't matter. I don't know why I'm here. I don't want to be here. I want us to say, I am valuable. I am valuable. I'm valuable. Not only valuable, you're extremely valuable. You really, really matter. Now let me ask you a question. What determines value? Do I look in a mirror and maybe if I like what I see, hey, I've got some value. Maybe my bank account's full and doing good. I mean, I don't know how a bank account can be full. It's never full enough, is it? <laughs> right? Or maybe, maybe 
you know, people like me socially. I'm accepted. People want to spend time with me. I'm a good guy. I care for people. I open doors for people. You know, I, I, I'm a good neighbor. I'm a good worker. What, what makes us valuable? What, what is it that makes us valuable? Maybe as a student, you know, you get good grades. You're amongst the top 10%. Does that increase your value? Is our value based upon what we do or is our value based upon who we are? And so, you know, I just want to say you've never locked eyes with a person that is not extremely valuable in the eyes of God. It doesn't matter if they're the richest of rich, if the most popular of popular, you know, if they're powerful, if they're smart, if they're not smart, if they're poor, if they don't have a job. You've never locked eyes with a person that's not extremely valuable to God. Now, in this world, there are two things that I can think of that determines value. And the first one is, who has owned an item. So something is determined valuable. Okay, so say this is my something right here, right? Do you know that Michael Jordan once drank from this glass? Now that would intrigue some sports fans. Like, really? Can you prove that to me? Well, it's only an ordinary glass, but this, this, this person who once had or touched it has made it more valuable, right? Who it belonged to. I once heard, you want to talk about sports fans, I once heard someone, a fan, dug in the trash for a piece of gum that someone, I think it was Michael Jordan, threw away. Well, I mean, a piece of gum is something we trample underfoot, right? Did you guys ever see American Pickers? American Pickers is a show where these people go to um, various places that have old, old what? Storage units and things that have, you know, old signs, old bikes, old motorcycles, old cars, this, that, the other. Well, American Pickers, they had this show. They recently found Aerosmith, the band's, Aerosmith's first van. And this thing was like, I mean, just a hunk of junk now. This is 40 years later, right? They paid $25,000 to get that van. Now, the van had zero worth except for the fact that it was owned by Aerosmith. You get what I'm saying? So when we talk about value, value is determined, first of all, by the original owner. The original owner. And I want to tell you, based upon that, you have worth because God is your father. You are made in his likeness. But the second way that uh, value is determined is what someone is willing to pay for it. You know? I mean, you could say, I've got this amazing car I used to have this car that I I thought very highly of until I tried to sell it. And no one would pay what I thought it was worth. Something is only worth what someone is willing to pay for it, right? And, you know, God sent his son. Like, he paid the highest price for you. He he paid the highest price for you in... um, in 1 Peter 18, check this powerful verse out. 
1 Peter 1.18, if I didn't say it right. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed or purchased, bought back. It wasn't silver or gold that was used to buy you back from the enemy, from the realm of darkness, right? From the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ. God bought you back by sending his son. He paid the highest price for you. Listen to me, the death of Jesus was worth it for me to God. Maybe I'll say it a different way that could be clearer. The death of Jesus Jesus was worth it to get me back to God. That's a high price. Right? That's a high price. We are valuable. You are valuable. I want you to know that. The world may spit upon you, trample over you, tell you you're worth nothing, you're worthless, you'll never amount to anything. But God says, wait a second. Who determines your value? It's either the world or him. I choose him. I mean, he's my creator. I'm made in his image. I'm made in his likeness. I choose to believe what he says about me. If we get these things straight, we are loved. We are forgiven. We are valuable. And finally, we are God's children. This is, these are the basis for a shaky foundation. If we don't have these things solidified, you know, when, 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 when things that are not true, when subtle lies come our way, we can stomp them out and we could stand on the truth or we could let them seep in because we don't necessarily have the solid foundation. When we have these things solidified in our lives, we can, we can stand against so many lies. We can, we can be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Amen? So here's, here's the last one. You're in God's family. 1 John 3, 1. And I'm, I'm winding down now so someone can help me with that. Maybe Leonard uh, D. Thank you so much. 1 John 3, 1, it says this. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. His demonstration of love is they said, they're my kids. That's what you are. That's what you are. You're a child of God. Now, you think about your children if you have children. Or you think about your parents if you don't have children. Now, a good parent will love you, will go out of their way, will bend over backwards to to take care of you, to protect for you, to provide for you. And I understand in this room, not everyone has had that example. I understand that. And I'm so sorry about that. But this father is a really, really good father. He's a a really good father. And what he says is, I'm not ashamed of my family. Now listen, all of us have family members that were a little bit like, "Ah." maybe that weird aunt or, you know, someone where we're like, "Eh, you want to stay away from that person. Or we try to prepare someone before they meet that person. That's sort of like being ashamed. Our Father is not ashamed of us. Our Father loves us unconditionally. He will never be ashamed of you. There's nothing you can do that puts shame on our Father towards you. 
That's not a license to go do what we want. It just makes us want to love him more, serve him more, connect to him more, right? God will never be ashamed of us. Here's my last verse. This is so powerful. Hebrews 2.11. It says, both the one who makes people holy, that's Jesus, and those who are made holy, that's us, are of the same family. We're in the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother or his sister. He's not ashamed of you. There's no shame. We're in the same family. We're children of God. We have privilege. We have favor. We have inheritance. We have access. Right? My son Judah, even to this day, 19 years old, he just walks in my office. I mean, I want to fix that a little bit because... But I mean, it's just privilege. It's like, this is my dad, you know? Just walks in, walks in, no knock, no nothing, just boom. Just like. But, but it, it's amazing because he knows who he is related to, my, to, to our relationship. He's my son. He has access. He has access to everything that's mine and my wife's. And that's That's powerful. He chose you to be in his family. Now listen, I want to say something very clearly. I love the church, but I'm not too fond of religion. I'm not that fond of religion. Because religion always attaches conditions. You can be a part of God's family if. You know, I just don't want to, you know, it's sort of like, Moving past the love of the law and toward the the law of love. You know? The law is, I'm going to hold you to the letter of the law. But God's like, through Jesus Christ, is like shed his love abroad to the body of Christ. Religion kills. Religion drives people out of the church. And we need to get to a place of love. And that comes from a family mindset. It comes from understanding who we really are. Because when, when our ground is shaky, when our foundation is shaky, when we really don't understand who we are, we're insecure. And when we're insecure, it's hard for us to love other people. And we need, need to move toward a law of love. God is so good to us. So today, I want to invite you to stand. I want you to think about these things. Maybe... One of these areas, I am loved, I'm forgiven, I'm valuable, and I'm a son or daughter. When you heard it, you began to think, wow, maybe there's a challenge for me here. Or maybe, maybe at this point you haven't even thought about it, but I would encourage you to take it before God to say, God, are there areas in any of these four areas that I'm unstable in, any of these areas that I need to grow in. And I want to give this to you so I can be firm in who I am in Christ. Firm in who I am in Christ. He loves you. He's forgiven you. You are valuable beyond your wildest imagination in his eyes. And you're his son or daughter. What an amazing God we serve. Amen? Now, we're going to close our service here. I want to invite the ministry workers up, ministry team up. But a couple things. If you're here today and you're hearing these things for the first time, or maybe you've heard them, but you really hasn't, haven't 
come to the place of saying, this God is good. I want to give him my life. I want to surrender my life to him. Maybe you've never invited him in to be Lord of your life, and today's a great day to do that. Our ministry team would love to help you with that. Explain some things to you, answer some questions you may have, but God loves you. But we, as a church, are moving forward. We're firm in our, we're growing firm in our identity and who God has called us to be. Powerful in the Lord. Amen? He's called us to be powerful people. And so I want to pray for you that God would speak to you this week and help take you to a new level in who you really are. Amen? Father, today we thank you that you have established our identity. You've established who we really are, God. And we look to you to identify who we are and not to others, not to the world, not to our experience or our past or our pains. We look to you. Father, those who are still dealing with pains of the past, I pray that you bring healing to their lives. And Father, help us to look to you, to your word and the reality of who you say we are to stand firm as a follower of Jesus Christ. We thank you for that. Now, one last thing I want to say to you. Today's Servolution. And I want to challenge you to make sure that we're committed as a family to be a part of what God's doing here. Amen? He's an amazing God. And when we're around people, we grow in love with one another. It challenges us relationally sometimes, but it helps us to grow to be more like who God called us to be. Amen. God bless you guys. We love you. Have a great Sunday. And go Steelers.